highest priority for society at large is making sure we could get these compounds through FDA approval for people with these very, very serious conditions that desperately, desperately need help. Um, but the second phase of that is I believe that research that we will develop through that will demonstrate, number one, not only the efficacy of these compounds, but number two, the safety profile of these compounds. These compounds are extremely, extremely safe. It's going to be a really neat behind the scenes. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so weird. Because something always magical happens. Wait, what? Did you just make that up? Hey, it's Meredith For Real, the curious introvert. Listen each week as I talk with someone new. The topics are as ADD as I am, but they'll inspire you to stay curious and grow. Big thanks to our location sponsor, the UWF Historical Trust. Hey, Curiositors, it's me, Meredith. When you think about lawyers and accountants, I'm willing to bet magic mushrooms don't usually come to mind. Well, it's this paradox that I appreciated so much about this week's guest. If you've been listening with me for a while, you may remember that during the holidays of 2020, I did a mental health series, and a ton of you gave me great feedback on how much these episodes resonated with you. They're episodes 56 through 65, if you want to circle back on those. If you like episodes like that, you might be surprised how much hope this episode will give you. Although my guest covers more of the legal side of this mental health solution, I felt his perspective was the most paradoxical introduction into the subject of psychedelic treatment possible, which, as you may know, makes it totally irresistible to me. Let me know what you think of this episode and if you want to hear more on this subject. In fact, let me know about any subject you want to hear more of. You can find me on Instagram, Meredith For Real, or leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you are one of my returning listeners, or as we like to call ourselves, curiositors, thank you so much for coming back. And if you're new here, welcome. I started this podcast in 2019 as a project to inspire people to choose curiosity over judgment, making this podcast a hybrid of society and culture and personal development. There's really no particular order to listen to episodes, so have a look around and hit play on whatever grabs your attention. All right, enjoy the show. Treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, opioid addiction, magic mushrooms, ayahuasca, ibogaine. No, this isn't a late-night haiku. It's actually a list of problems and potential solutions, psychedelic solutions, that are federally illegal in the U.S. My next guest initially felt how you might feel about psychedelics right now, that they're risky with no potential mental or health benefits. That's until this straight-laced CPA and attorney experienced them for himself. Now he's known as Mr. Psychedelic Law. His nonprofit uses research to drive responsible legal reform in Florida for psychedelics. Today he's going to share why this even matters, his personal experience, and the legal rollout he hopes to achieve. Evidence tracker, stigma breaker, lover of plants and planks, Dustin Robinson. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great intro. <laughs> well, Simon Sinek says start with why. So let's start with why do we want to make psychedelics federally legal? Yeah, well, there's probably three things that I think are, are important. Number one is that we're in a mental health crisis. 
Justice. I think everyone pretty much understands that. I think probably most of your audience knows that we're in a mental health crisis. We actually were in a mental health crisis before the pandemic, and that was just exacerbated uh, upon the pandemic. The second thing, and this is what maybe some of your audience does not know, is that the current pharmaceuticals for mental health just aren't working. Um, they're highly addictive. They have a lot of different side effects. And generally, even if there's some short-term benefit from these SSRIs or benzos, generally they're not working. And that evi that's evidenced by the mental health crisis. You know, the numbers are just getting worse and worse. And there's really been no pharmaceutical development in the mental health space for over three decades. So the pharmaceutical products that people were taking over three decades ago are pretty much the same as they're taking right now, which is pretty unbelievable when you think of all the different technologies and innovations we've had over the, the past three decades. And then the third thing that is important to understand as far as the why is that these psychedelic compounds are demonstrating extreme efficacy for resolving this mental health issue. So, you know, you have an issue right now that is probably, in my opinion, one of the biggest issues in society, mental health crisis. And meanwhile, you have uh, a class of compounds called psychedelics that are demonstrating extreme efficacy, um, and they're going through multiple clinical trials right now. And when I initially got my medical marijuana card, I'm not, I know we're not really talking about marijuana, but when I got that, I had this super utopian image in my head of like those doctors leaving the standard American health system, middle fingers raised, slamming the door very dramatically out to help the people. And then I realized that a lot of those physicians are just really tired <laughs> and they saw medical marijuana recommendations as um, a, a way to more easily make money. So I have to ask this because I'm sure my audience is thinking that. How do we know that you're not the lawyer version of that? <laughs> well, actually, I think so that there's an important distinction. I think you bring up a good point with cannabis versus psychedelics. And um, the main distinction be between cannabis and psychedelics, in my opinion, is that cannabis is mainly driven by its recreational or adult use. So, so yes, it has some therapeutic value, but when all the dust settles, what we're really looking to do with cannabis is get everyone access. We want everyone to have access to these compounds because everyone uses them in different ways. And I see it as kind of a, a therapeutic spectrum. Some people are simply recreational. They want to have fun and use them and they should have access because they're really not very dangerous compounds. Um, and some people use them for sleep. Some use them for anxiety, but everyone's kind of different, but, but it's mainly driven by just full access recreational use. Psychedelics in contrast, are really mainly driven right now by the actual medicinal benefits and the pharmaceutical use of these compounds. So that's why a lot of these these pharmaceutical, the, the, the psychedelic compounds are really going through the proper federal channels, which is taking them through FDA clinical trials. And the research is absolutely profound that they're coming up with. Whereas in the cannabis side, they really weren't taking it towards, um, I mean, there were some Epidiolex, Sativex, those are, those are cannabinoid-based compounds that were taken through FDA clinical trials. But for the most part, when all the dust settles, we're really looking for cannabis to have full access um, and not necessarily a, a pharmaceutical use. There will be pharmaceutical compounds, but that's not the main motivation. So for all, a lot of these doctors that got into the 
medical cannabis space, they saw there 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 be a, a, a an opportunity because originally almost every state starts with the medical cannabis framework, but eventually, you know, really that's just a pretext for for what's coming next, which is the recreational adult use. And when we see recreational adult use come online essentially those medical marijuana cards start reducing and there's not as many people signing up for them. So, so yes, there are some probably bad actor doctors that are just out to make, make a buck, but at the end of the day, it's also very challenging. And, and my, I, I've run a law firm as well that exclusively focuses on the cannabis and psychedelic space. So I represent a lot of different clinics, a lot of different doctors, and it's very challenging right now for them because, you know, they have these patients that have, various conditions and they're treating them with cannabis, but they see the writing on the wall that when it goes recreational, um, a lot of those patients will probably just access uh, that medicine through um, the recreational framework. So, you know, my passion behind psychedelics is really reading through the research and understanding how efficacious they really work. Like you mentioned in your intro, I had never even tried a psychedelic compound up until probably like 20 months ago. Um, and that was after a lot of my doctors were sending me research. We've already set up several ketamine clinics. We had um, set up some research program with different universities. And I decided to try it myself. And I was quite surprised by what I was feeling. You know, a lot of the research about the, the dendrites being built, the, the neuroplasticity, the neurogenesis, all those things I started experiencing myself when I had my first experience. And that's when I started to dig even deeper into the research. And I recognized that in order to really move this industry forward, not only do we have to have lawyers representing these companies, not only do we have to have nonprofits that are advocating for these companies, but we also need to deploy significant capital into the research in order to prove out uh, the the efficacy of these compounds for various mental and behavioral health conditions. And when you said you had your own personal experience, um, can you dive into that a little bit more? Because a lot of our, our listeners and maybe even our viewers on YouTube, I don't assume that they've experienced psilocybin or ayahuasca or any of those things. So can you tell us um, which plant or fungi that you experienced and what that felt like? And then um, what was the lasting impact of your perspective after that? Yeah. So um, like I said, I had been research, uh, reading a lot of the research. And so I wanted to have my, my own experience. So I actually, my first experience was with psilocybin, which is the main compound in magic mushrooms. Um, psilocybin is the magic mushrooms, what THC is to marijuana. So basically psilocybin is the what creates the psychoactive effect within magic mushrooms. Um, and originally, you know, I went my whole life, I'm 36 years old. And, and you know, I guess my first experience was when I was 35. And I went my whole life, you know, very much being about physical health, mental health, um, very careful about the compounds I put in my body. Um, my college friends think it's hilarious that I'm the one kind of leading this movement and deploying capital into the industry because I'm probably the last person they would have expected. Um, so I carried that stigma. You know, I, I, I understand where people are coming from when they they read these headlines and they're like, this is a bunch of baloney. This is crazy. This is just people trying to find a way to make money or trying to find a pretext to, you know, access illegal compounds. Um, but when I took them, I, I really experienced that sense of, of oneness and perspective for, for this planet. 
um, and respect for nature. Um, you know, it, you, 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 what's amazing about these compounds is what you experience during uh, the administration of the compound, you're really able to carry forward into your everyday life, assuming you properly integrate. So there's kind of three parts of this, the, the process for taking any sort of psychedelic compound. There's the preparation. So that's kind of setting your intent beforehand. There's the actually admin, actual administration of it, which is actually consuming the compound, but there's also the integration. And what I found is that the integration is, is super integral to the whole process. And if you properly integrate and you collect your thoughts and, and you understand what you just experienced, there's no reason why that sense of oneness and that, that, vast perspective that you're able to gain while you're on it cannot be carried forward one year, two years, 10 years from now. And that's what we're seeing with the research. A lot of the research around psilocybin and MDMA and DNT, what it's showing is that after just, and, and these are being researched for treatment resistant depression, major depressive disorder, PTSD, various different conditions. What they're finding is that after just one use of these compounds, um, people, they're seeing that people are not showing signs of major depressive disorder, treatment of depression, PTSD for months and even years thereafter. Now, now most of the protocols for the clinical trials that are going on are quite exhaustive. You know, there's several preparation sessions, then there's several administration sessions, and then there's several um, integration sessions. And then, but but for example, with MDMA, which is in phase three clinical trials. They actually showed in their phase three clinical trials that over two thirds of the people that went through their protocol showed no signs of PTSD a year after being treated. Wow. That's profound. In the, in the pharmaceutical industry, getting two thirds type efficacy, meeting your endpoints like that is really not seen very often. So I think that's what's that what, what people are most excited about that. Whereas for SSRIs and benzos, you have to take them every single day and essentially you're just getting addicted to these compounds. Um, these, the, the, the psychedelic compounds, it's really meant to just take them a few times and then you, you, you know, you're supposed to be, you know, I don't want to say healed because we're always trying to, we all have our own mental health challenges and, and perhaps you might need a, a re a recharge, you know, a year later or something like that. But these are not necessarily meant to be taken every single day, mm -hmm. which I think is part of the problem with the pharmaceutical industry. And you brought up an interesting point when you were talking about the uh, PTSD that reminded me one of my listeners wanted to know about how, from a legal perspective, you help clinicians screen people and protect themselves against litigation, of course, on for people who are vulnerable to psychedelic-induced psychosis. Yeah, so there's, I guess it's a good point time to like talk about the different frameworks. So, so my nonprofit is mainly focused on city and state legalization. So that kind of looks like the cannabis framework where it's federally illegal, um, but you're still looking, you know, you're trying to prove to the states that we should just ignore federal law. But federal law is supreme to state law. So even under the cannabis context, um, it's still illegal, the cannabis. So, so what I'm trying to do from a nonprofit perspective um, is city and state legalization, which really 
there's no states yet that have really gone forward. Oregon is the only one measure 109 um, did allow psilocybin use. They have a two-year rulemaking process, and until that's done, um, you can't, you still can't commercialize psilocybin. So there's a lot of confusion around that. People think in Oregon it's just totally legal. They did decriminalize in Measure 110 in Oregon, um, but that's very different than a, a commercialized framework. So in that Oregon framework doctors or, or actually service centers are allowed to be licensed to administer psilocybin. So even under the Oregon framework, you can't go and buy it, take it home and, and take it at your home. In the cannabis industry, you can. Psilocybin, you can't. It has to be administered at a service center. And so in the cannabis industry, doctors have a First Amendment right to write uh, a recommendation for people to get to, to get their cannabis. And, and that's what they're doing right now. That's why they're not doing anything federally illegal when a, when a doctor writes a prescription. However, under the Oregon framework, it's the service center actually administering the compound. And so if a doctor were to actually administer that compound, they'd be partaking in something that is federally illegal. So that's under the city and state type of framework. So for doctors, I guess, long story short, if you're a clinician, I would be very, very careful and consult with an attorney if you're looking to operate under any sort of city and state legalization right now. Really, Oregon's the only one. California has a bill out there. I filed a bill in Florida last legislative session. It didn't pass. Lots of states are coming up with bills, so that probably will be a thing in the future. But doctors and clinicians really need to be careful about operating under that framework. The, the other framework are psychedelic compounds being taken through the proper federal channels, which is in, in the United States, the, the FDA. And so ketamine right now is the only psychedelic compound that has been FDA approved. So it's a schedule three compound. So a lot of doctors are using it for it, it, it off label for various mental health conditions. So that's totally legal. So if a doctor or a clinician um, wanted to open up a ketamine clinic or a clinic that, you know, one of the tools they use is, is ketamine, um, they would be able to do so, but there are obviously a lot of different uh, disclosures and form consent forms. There's all sorts of different things you need to do, really not that, not that are specific to psychedelics, but really that are specific to off-label use. So that's the number one challenge when you're doing ketamine, you're using it off-label, which essentially means that you're using it for a condition that it was not approved for which is totally allowed over like 20% of prescriptions are being prescribed for a condition that they weren't necessarily approved for. So that's the first hurdle. The second hurdle is that these ketamine, uh, the, the administration of the ketamine generally takes place at the facility. So you're putting someone through an actual um, psychedelic experience within your clinic. So obviously you don't want them driving home after um, you want them to understand the risks involved and things of that nature. So those are kind of the two factors that you need to keep in mind. And that's what kind of drives the entire legal complexity around administering ketamine. Now, the future reason people are so, so many people are excited about opening up clinics for ketamine is because MDMA is in phase three clinical trials. And once that's approved and, and commercialized, which I think will probably happen by the end of 2023, um, these clinics that are currently administering ketamine will have the opportunity to potentially be certified by MAPS to administer M MDMA. And then psilocybin is in phase two clinical trials coming on right, right behind it. So I believe in the future, in the next three years, there's going to have to be tens of thousands of psychedelic centers that will need to be open to administer these compounds. So how are clinicians going to screen their patients for risk of psychedelic-induced psychosis? 
Yes. Yeah, so, so basically, right now, through the clinical trials, once again, we're not working on the city and state framework, we're working on the FDA framework. These compounds are being approved under what's called REMS, Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies. And that's essentially the protocols that the FDA is requiring to basically mitigate the risk. And so one of those requirements is that the compound is actually administered at the center. Right. And, and oftentimes not only does it have to be administered at the center, they also have to stay at the center for an additional couple hours. So, for example, Spravato, also known as esketamine, is a ketamine nasal spray that actually is FDA approved um, for depression. And when you take that, there's all sorts of REMS that you need to follow. So each of these psychedelic compounds will have their own protocols, their own screening requirements and things of that nature. They haven't quite been developed yet, or we don't know what, exactly what that's going to, to look like. Um, but I, I assume the clinician that's asking this question has has read some articles that one of the um, things people need to be screened out for is psychosis. Some of the other stuff is cardiac problems. Um, there are certain psychedelic compounds that have certain cardi, car, you know, cardiac risk. So, you know, really, it's going to be a, a very specific set of standards which have really not been created yet, where you need to screen patients, make sure you're properly monitoring them during the session. Um, so that includes, you know, sometimes you have someone in the, 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 the room with them. For example, the MAPS. MAPS actually requires two therapists in the room with them. Explain what MAPS is, because I don't think our listeners will know yes. what's MAPS. So, Ma so MAPS is a probably one of the oldest organizations in the psychedelic industry. They've been doing research and advocacy around psychedelics since like, I think like the late 80s, early 90s. Um, Rick Doblin is the head of MAPS, very, very well known. And MAPS is basically the sponsor behind the MDMA clinical trials for PTSD. So MDMA is the furthest along of all the psychedelic compounds and essentially MAPS is the organization that is behind it. And so when MDMA gets approved, MAPS will essentially be certifying therapists to actually administer psychedelic assisted therapy. And they will also be certifying the sites that will be administering psychedelic assisted therapy. So yeah, that's, that's MAPS. So right now they're a very powerful organization. They also started as a nonprofit they now they all now have a public benefits arm, which does have a somewhat for profit motivation. But they're they're really, really well known for kind of bridging the gap between nonprofit full access and um, for profit, you know, getting these getting the capital required to do the research um, to do this. Hey everyone, just a quick interruption to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. The UWF Historical Trust. We shoot the show at the Museum of Commerce and the Pensacola Museum of History. And it's not just an amazing step back into the 18 and 1900s, but it's an event space too. And because they love creative collaborations and have spaces for all party sizes, they're pretty much the perfect venue to make your event stand out. So if you need a unique space in downtown Pensacola, take a look at historicpensacola.org. And if you want to tour one of the 12 museums, get your tickets in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Get emails by texting REAL to 66866. It seems like no one can agree on anything nowadays. 
but I have found the unifier to unite us all. Mosquitoes suck. Mine were so bad, they were in my car. Have you ever tried to swat a mosquito while driving? Not advised. Insect has been great because they guarantee their work and pollinator care is always top of mind. If you live in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give them a call, ensec.net. I get messages all the time asking for help navigating a medical marijuana card. And it's always one of two problems. A, they don't know where to start, or B, they have their card but don't know what to do next. Enter Empathic Practice. If you're in Florida, they're a one-stop shop for your actual doctor visit, medical marijuana recommendation, and holistic support. If you're outside of Florida, even international, they offer cannabis coaching to help you dial in what will work for you. Check them out at empathicpractice.us. Now back to the show. And you're kind of implying, but I just want to make sure that I understand, the path for federal legalization and really the path for legalization in general, so state to federal, if you will, for psychedelics is going to be or that you want it to be different than cannabis because you mentioned this is like a clinician dispensed um, treatment, not a baggie people take home. So is that the framework that you feel is most beneficial that you're working towards or are you working towards an all access type of legalization framework? Yeah, so my, my I'm I'm very passionate. So like I'm very passionate about the concept that that we all should have access and, and the ability to enhance our consciousness and expand our mind, um, whether we have an indication or not, right? So so my 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 10-year plan is, you know, I believe there needs to be protocols and certain containers set up where people with no indication can go. So that they could have the psychedelic experience really for mind expansion, not necessarily for treating PTSD or treating depression, right? That's currently what, in my opinion, is wrong with the FDA process. In order to take a drug through clinical trials, you need to identify a particular indication. Well, the thing is, I think a lot of people can be largely benefited by taking these psychedelic compounds that don't necessarily fit into one of these nice little pretty indications. Now, with that being said, the highest priority for society is making sure we take care of people with these indications, right? So we don't want to fight for full access at the expense of getting people with PTSD, major depressive disorder, treatment-resistant depression, the medication they need. So in my opinion, highest priority for society at large is making sure we could get these compounds through FDA approval for people with these very, very serious conditions that desperately, desperately need help. Um, But the second phase of that is I believe that research that we will develop through that will demonstrate, number one, not only the efficacy of these compounds, but number two, the safety profile of these compounds. These compounds are extremely, extremely safe when done under the right set and setting. And so once we prove that out, I think the next movement would be full access. But with these compounds being as strong as they are and so powerful, powerful compounds could be used for good and they could also be used for bad. And we need to at least admit and understand that if these are not taken in a responsible manner, some bad things could happen, right? These compounds, especially especially when we're talking about dosage, if you take too much of these 
you could really have an experience where you really did not intend on having, right? And if you're not ready for that experience, it could be a quite traumatic event potentially. So I think it's what, what my nonprofit is mainly focused on. And this isn't consistent with all the different nonprofits. Some of them are just like, we want full access and we're not going to accept anything less than full access. What we're really focused on is responsible legal access, because the very worst thing, in my opinion, that could happen to this industry is that we unleash these compounds with no regulations and some very, very bad things happen. And then we're going to take that's like one step forward, 100 steps back. And that's what happened in the 1970s. We were having tremendous, tremendous research through the 50s and 60s. And then the hippie counterculture got their hands on these compounds and maybe some people use them irresponsibly. And, you know, the government took action. And so what we need to do is make sure we roll this out in a responsible manner. And I, if you look at my nonprofit website, we we put in capital letters the word responsible all over it, because I really think the key to su- successfully rolling this out is responsible. And really the most responsible way to do it is through the FDA, right? It's probably too responsible. You got to jump through a million <laughs> hurdles. You got to spend a hundred million dollars, yeah. but it's extremely responsible. Once we prove that out, we can then move towards starting to do the research required and, and proving out what type of container we need to provide broader access to more people. I like the idea of being able to provide it for those who have the more immediate and pressing need, and then all of the assholes can take it later. Because I feel <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> from what I've heard about the transformative change of psilocybin and ayahuasca, particularly, is that you just kind of shed the ego. And I just, I interviewed Dr. Bruce Grayson, who's done 50 years of near-death experience research. And he said that there's this interesting connection, neurologically speaking, between a near-death experiencer and a brain who is uh, is on psychedelics. And, uh, and the after effect, as you said, is long lasting after it. So yes, I, I would be, I like, I like what you're saying. And I, I do have to comment about the, the sixties and seventies counterculture. Um, that would be something neat for our listeners and our viewers to dive into a little bit more from what I understand the uh, prohibition on those substances had a little bit more to do with government agenda and less to do with, um, you know, people being harmed, but um, that's a whole nother, we could do a whole podcast on that. I I do have a question about um, employment. This was another question that came in from a listener that I just thought was too good not to bring up. So I know we're running out of time here, but um, if I take an edible on Monday to go to sleep well at night, I'm, and I have a drug test on Wednesday, I'm going to fail that drug test because of the edible I had on Monday. Um, even though all of the effects would be long gone by Wednesday. And I'm not sure if psychedelics behave in a similar way, but let's assume that they do. How is an employer, even with cannabis, they're, ha- they're having this problem right now, especially for those employment positions that involve driving. Well, how can we test this person for impairment if they're using a substance that is medicinally beneficial and therefore avoiding harmful pharmaceuticals. That seems very sticky to me. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I deal with that a lot on the cannabis side. It's very complicated. Actually, on the psilocybin or psychedelic side, it's much less complicated. So there's no 
like I mentioned, really, there's no legalization right now for psychedelics. Oregon kind of has something, but it's going to take a couple years. So if you take a, a, a psilocybin edible on Monday and you test positive on Wednesday, the first thing they do when you test positive is they ask, do you have a prescription? You could show us that shows you're legally consuming this, right? So if you have a prescription for for Oxycontin or whatever, and, and you test positive, you show your prescription and they say, okay, you're fine. With psilocybin, it's not FDA approved. So there's no, there's no prescription anyone will be able to show. So an employer um, that has a drug-free workplace policy, which most do because workers comp, you get better workers comp rates, if you have a drug-free workplace, most employers have a drug-free workplace, which basically says we're going to, to drug test you, assuming that part of that drug test is for psilocybin, um, you're going to test positive and that employer has every right to, to fire you. In the cannabis space, much more complex because some of these people have medical cannabis cards. And so they're taking medical cannabis and, you know, state sanctioned and on Monday and, and then on Wednesday they get drug tested. They're perfectly not impaired but they get terminated and, and that's a that depends on the state you're in different states have put out laws to protect those particular employees different states have not florida does not have any specific protections um but i do represent some employees and i do think there's a strong argument to be made uh that there is some protections in in, in our florida constitution we basically there, there's specific language that says that employers don't need to provide any protections um outside the workplace and then in our florida statute it uses the language in the workplace so in my opinion by saying that they don't need to provide protections for 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 use in the workplace I think that means that that means on-site use and impliedly that means there needs to be protect pr uh, protections for off-site use. So as long as you're not using it on-site at your place of employment, if you're using it off-site on Monday night before you go to sleep and you show up on Wednesday night, I do think that there's an argument to be made uh, that those employers should provide some protections. But that's a, a relative, relatively complex argument. And if they're ever have an issue with that, they should definitely contact a lawyer that's pretty familiar with that. It is complex. And that's why I'm glad that there are attorneys like you that not just um, in it to rake in the money, but really are a believer that plant medicine is so beneficial and it can help us not at just with our physical ailments, but as you said, our consciousness and our connectivity to one another, which is what this podcast is all about, is about connecting with others through curiosity, um, leading with curiosity and not leading with judgment. Don't, you know, don't block yourself off from people who think or act or have opinions different than you, but to really um, reach out. So I love that. I know that's that's pretty hippy dippy sounding, but you know what? There's truth to it. So, well, as we wrap up, is there anything else that you want our listeners or our viewers to know about? Um, no, I mean, our nonprofit, we are working on a new bill that we'll be filing in Florida. It's going to be more focused on research as opposed to a commercial framework. Um, the commercial framework is just a really, it's a Hail Mary in Florida. We're, we're not exactly as liberal as Oregon, California, Colorado, 
Um, so my the reason we're going kind of the research route is because we feel that there's really no way to argue with research. Um, you know, if we want to do research, I'm, both sides of the aisle should agree with research. And we're looking to put some stuff in that bill relating to the recent opioid settlement. So there was a like a $20 billion opioid settlement and Florida got $1.8 billion of it. And part of that money is supposed to go towards uh, addiction treatment. And right now, psychedelic compounds are showing extreme efficacy uh, for various uh, addiction uh, indications, alcohol use disorder, whatever it might be. Um, so we're trying to actually earmark some of the $1.8 billion that goes to Florida for research around psychedelics for addiction. So be on the lookout for that bill and, and try to offer your support if, uh, when, if and when you see it. Is it, does it have a name, the bill? No, we, we are in the process of drafting it. So okay. when, when we have a name and when we have more information, I will be sure to share it with you and you can share it with your viewers. Well, how can my viewers stay in touch with what you're doing? What are your socials? Yeah, so um, if you want to get involved on the nonprofit side, our website is mrpsychedeliclaw.com. Just click on Get Involved and fill it out and click Submit, and we'll keep you up to date on everything we're doing. Um, on IG, uh, it's Mr. Psychedelic Law. My law firm is Mr. Cannabis Law. My personal is Dustin R. 10. Um, and then we also have an investment firm that is really focused on deploying capital into psychedelic research. So if you're interested in learning more about that, our website is eaterinvestments.com. That's I-T-E-R investments.com. That's perfect. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on and happy to get on any other time in the future. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, you'll also like the one about the officer's wife and PR firm owner who is a new medical cannabis patient. That's episode 65. You can also watch episodes on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Meredith for Real. Stay tuned next week when I talk with a German corporate consultant on how diversity and culture create resilience. Talk to you next week.